0: Find the center, know you're a sinner, realize your life is not about you.
1: Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vought, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries, joining us in our Santa Barbara Studio is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, always good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Good morning. Or good afternoon. I guess to you in Orlando. Good afternoon. I know we're always at like we're always in the morning for you and the afternoon yeah. for me. It's always three hours throwing us off. and three thousand hey, miles away. Yeah. Besides the spatial difference, we uh, we just announced that we're on fire. The release of our new sacraments mm. film and study program. This was something that you filmed about a year ago, which. Yeah. Ironically, at the time, the sacraments were freely and widely available. Now they're not. We're still in the middle of this coronavirus thing. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about this study program and why you think it's important for
0: Catholics now to focus on the sacraments. Well, you know, one thing is they don't need me to say so because what we did at Word on Fire is we asked people in parish ministry, uh, what would you like us to do for our next um, uh, series? We've done ones on the Eucharist, on the Mass, on God, etc., And the overwhelming response was, something on the sacraments, please. So we're just responding in a way to the the demand of the audience. But I think you're right. We didn't see the coronavirus thing coming. And people's hunger for the sacraments has been reawakened. So I think it's a a prime time, really, for this to come out. I'm really proud of it. We filmed it uh, down in Hollywood last, whenever that was, October or something, in a beautiful church down there, appropriately called Blessed Sacrament and we got a big crowd in that church and I gave these uh, lectures that were filmed very beautifully. So, I think it will be super useful to a lot of people in ministry and also to, you know, the average catholic.
1: Yeah, I thought of it for my own family with my own kids. You know, yeah. some of the reflections might be a little bit above them, but the beauty of the film yeah. series will draw them in. There's there's little enactments of the sacraments and things. So I encourage people to check it out. Um, If you go to wordonfireshow.com slash sacraments, you can actually watch for free the first of the six talks. So there's a six talk series for this study program and you can watch the entirety of the first one. I think it's about a half an hour for free at wordonfireshow.com slash sacraments. And then you can learn more about how to get access to the rest of the series. So I encourage you to check that out. All right, Bishop, today we are going to be discussing the cataclysm sentence. This comes from the famous physicist Richard Feynman, who in 1961 stepped in front of a group of undergraduates at the Caltech lecture hall, and he posed this hypothetical question, this thought experiment, to the class. He said, if in some cataclysm, some end-of-the-world scenario, all of scientific knowledge were to be destroyed, and only one sentence was passed on to the next generation of creatures, what statement would contain the most information in the fewest words? Now, I first learned about this through a recent episode of the Radiolab podcast. They did an interesting show where they brought back Richard Feynman today, you know, 50 years later, along with a whole slew of writers and artists, musicians, scientists. They even had a mortician offer his response as to this cataclysmic sentence. And they gave some good answers, although there wasn't really any representation from the fields of religion or philosophy. So... I thought it was the perfect opportunity for a show where we could offer some religious answers to the cataclysm sentence scenario. Um, So that's what we're gonna do here. We're gonna look at a series of figures throughout the Christian tradition, including Moses, St. Paul, Augustine, Aquinas, some of our major saints and spiritual heroes, take a stab, take a guess at what we think their cataclysm sentence would be. Now, there's probably going to be some overlap among these figures, so maybe we might twist the experiment to say, what's the one sentence that sums up the message that these figures were trying to communicate, the one insight that sums up their life's work? Um, And I also want to get, Bishop, to to your own answer, which I think will be interesting, but we'll save that for the very end. Uh, Let's start off with, with Moses, Moses, the great figure of the the jewish faith and of the old testament what do you think moses would most want to leave people if say all the religious texts were to be destroyed the whole culture was collapsing
0: and he could leave them one thing what what sentence would he offer yeah i thought about that it's the difficulty with moses of course is you have moses the historical figure you've got moses the literary character within the you know bible and then you've got uh moses who classically was seen as the author of the first five books of the bible you know so I thought one way to do it is to get at Moses as he's presented in the book of Deuteronomy. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, it's presented as Moses' last sort of testament to Israel. Before they enter the promised land, he knows he's not going to enter. But let me share with you my kind of summary of all of Israelite life. You know? So it's a good place to look. And within the book of Deuteronomy, I'd recommend people go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Arguably for um, the Old Testament the most important passage In fact, Jesus himself will cite it won't he when he's asked sort of the Feynman question "Uh, Rabbi sum up for us. You know what it's all about and Deuteronomy 6 4 is called the Shema Hebrew for listen Hear O Israel the Lord your God is Lord alone. That's the Shema the prayer repeated to this day by pious Jews Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is Lord alone, the great monotheism of Israel. Now, I know our culture, for all kinds of reasons, hyper-valorizes pluralism. And we could do a whole show on that. There's all kinds of reasons for it. We hyper-valorize pluralism. That's always seen as a good thing. And forms of monism are, are usually seen from their negative aspect. Namely, they're oppressive, they're domineering, and so on. And again, we can argue all that politically and culturally. But when it comes to the spiritual order, when it comes to the spiritual order, this statement of Deuteronomy 6.4, call it the great statement of Moses, remains of absolutely primordial significance. Because what it's saying is, at the level of one's ultimate value, there cannot and there should not be pluralism. Say what you want about pluralism in other parts of life. But when it comes to the highest value, To be pluralistic there is to be splintered. That's a diabolic uh, stance, that I'm, I'm now following this, now following that. Well, some degree to this direction, some degree to that direction. That's spiritual poison. Clarification comes, and I mean here like the integration of the self comes, when there's clarity about the unity of the ultimate value. Not wealth, not power, not privilege, not anything in this world, not any collection of things in this world, but God alone. So here, O Israel, the Lord your God, is God alone, the highest value alone. Talk about the Feynman thing. So much in the spiritual order is cleared up and comes into focus when we're clear about the Shema. So I would say that, maybe. And and how wonderful— that it's carried right through, of course, into the Christian tradition. Think of it every time, now Catholics at Mass, you rise and you say, credo in unum deum, right? I believe in one God. You're repeating the Shema. You're repeating the ancient prayer of of Moses. And it's making the same spiritual point, right? No political party, no leader, no anybody is Lord except the Lord alone. Credo in unum deum. So I think that's my, my Moses, uh, Feynman statement.
1: All right. Well, let's move forward from Moses next up to Jesus. And I'm always wary whenever we include Jesus in a list of other major religious thinkers, to add the caveat that we're not saying Jesus is just one among many, that he's on the same platform as all these other figures, or that Jesus was simply a communicator of important truths. You know, in some ways with Jesus, it's more about the cataclysmic event of his incarnation and passion, death and resurrection, not a teaching that he left us per se. But... Suppose Jesus could only leave people with one sentence.
0: What do you suppose that sentence would be? You know, I'd first make the observation, or, or re- remake it, that when Jesus was asked the Feynman question, he gave the Shema. And then what follows from it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And he added, and your neighbor is yourself. So in a way, Jesus gives us the great model. He answered this question. They say, by the way, it's the cool thing that in the first century, they would challenge a rabbi to sum up the law while standing on one foot. And the idea was, so so you got to do it quick, man. (laughs) You can't be messing around here. you got to say this succinctly. So that was Jesus' answer to it. Okay. Having said that, I would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, because as you say quite rightly, Brandon, Jesus is not one teacher among many. Um. I find this interesting, that interesting. The Buddha's interesting, Sufi mystics are fascinating. I find uh, uh, Jewish prophets fascinating, and they're all telling me some truth about the ultimately mysterious God. Well, that's a path that many take today. but see, it is something that is radically different about Jesus. And yes, causes trouble. It always has. It had from the beginning to this day it causes trouble. When he says, "Not, oh, I've got an interesting take on the truth for you." Or, you know, I'm a a way you could walk. I, myself, in person, am the truth, am the life, am the way. It's the exclusive priority of Christ that is world-changing once you get it. If you get it in the positive way, it shines light in every possible direction. He's not only the truth I seek, he's the way to it. You know, Was it Teresa of Avila who had the great line that, that all the way to heaven is also heaven? Because Jesus said, I am the way as well as the truth and the life. But once you see that about Jesus, everything else will fall into place. He's the center around which all, everything else in your spiritual, material, uh, relational life revolves. So I, I put that maybe central for him, that he identifies himself As the truth that we all seek see one way to put it Brandon go back to Prologue of John to say that in the beginning was the word see that's the Feynman thing in a way What's the pattern by which all of reality is properly viewed? So if you want the pattern of patterns and and press it uh, in my book the Priority of Christ. I talk about this. Yes, even in the sciences because Jesus is the Logos of the Creator God, and therefore what's revealed in him should also be on display in the the material world, the natural world. He's the pattern by which all things are known. That's another way of saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I guess I, I would say that in regard to Jesus.
1: You know, on the affirmation that Jesus himself is the way, that he's not coming to communicate a way, but he is the way, I think of this um, challenge that I've often heard from my atheist friends, especially those with more of a scientific yeah. bent in the worst sense. They say, you know, if you took all of the scientific textbooks, all of the scientific discoveries, and a nuclear bomb destroyed everything, and you're starting over from ground zero, just like in the Feynman hypothesis, that eventually, maybe it'll take a thousand years, a few thousand years, whatever all of those things will come back. People will discover the same things, run the same experiments, it'll all come back. And because of that, that's an affirmation of the objective truth value of science. Mm -hmm. Whereas with religion, suppose a bomb destroyed every copy of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the writings of the saints and the fathers, the whole Christian revelation was destroyed religion wouldn't come back in the same way, and therefore religion is subservient to science.
0: What do you make of that sort of claim? I don't see how that follows in any way. I mean, first of all, elements of it would come back, because there's an overlap between Revelation and call it natural religion or the perennial philosophy. So, sure, people reflecting on the natural world will come up with certain truths about God, and our Catholic tradition reverences that. And look at Romans 1.20, you know, by the visible things of the world we can know the invisible things of God. So so first of all, I, I deny the, the premise. I think some, some of religion would indeed come back in precisely the same way. But here's why it doesn't work, though, Brandon, because yes, religion depends, at least our our religion depends, upon a divine revelation. So God spoke. So God would have to speak again. So let's let's say, in that scenario, all of religious literature, everything is lost, everything's forgotten. Okay, true. God would have to reveal himself again. You know, Um, fair enough. But to me, that just signals the difference of a revealed religion as opposed to a purely natural religion. So the the premise is like partially true, partially false. But that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, because I I affirm that God has spoken in a way that that goes beyond whatever we could naturally come up with. All right, let's
1: continue the Feynman thought experiment. We'll move from Jesus next to St. Paul, the first great Christian theologian. What one sentence do you think St. Paul would leave us?
0: Yeah, you know, of course, you gave me these several days ago just to think about. And uh, I wrestled a bit with Paul, but you know what what came to me, even though it might seem hackneyed because we hear it at every single wedding, but um, there are three things that last, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. I would go with that, and let me tell you why. Um, Paul, as someone trained in a Hellenistic environment as well as a Jewish environment, but as as a Hellenist, he would have known the the natural virtues, right? So you think of justice, doing the right thing. Prudence, knowing how to apply principles to the particular situation. Temperance, how to hold off obstacles to justice coming from within me. And then uh, courage, how to hold off obstacles coming from outside of me. So go back to Aristotle and company, and the ancient world articulated these four great virtues that enable us to move effectively through this world. So whether you're, you're a businessman, you're a scientist, you're the mother of a family, you're whatever you are, those four natural virtues will help you make your way effectively and, and, and righteously through the world. Okay. What does Paul introduce on in one Corinthians? He introduces what the tradition came to call the theological virtues, namely faith, hope, and love. Now, what makes them theological is they order us to God. Natural virtues order us to to success within the world and all that, terrific. And and our tradition has, has ratified those natural virtues. But the theological virtues order us toward our supernatural end. Uh, This world, let's face it, is passing and talk to any scientist say they remind us that all the time, right? That and Thomas Aquinas knew it too. Everything in this world is contingent. It's evanescent. It comes and it goes but what lasts? God and the things of God What gives me access to that world? First of all faith Which is the opening up of a door to an experience that lies beyond ordinary experience The listening to a voice that goes beyond any voice within this world So Thomas calls faith the the yanuwa, right? The door to the spiritual life. What's hope? Hope is what orients me toward an end that goes beyond this world. So in this world, I I can hope to achieve this end, hope to get through this school, hope to get that job, hope to marry this woman, hope for all kinds of things. But heck, I know that at the end of the day, all those things are going to fade away anyway, and I'm going to die. Hope, the theological virtue, orders me toward the supernatural end. That which doesn't fade away right so faith hope and then finally love what's love love is what God is Love is the life of heaven Love is what faith is opening me to love is what hope is hoping for That's why so the three things that last faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love why because in heaven Faith will fade away. I don't need faith in heaven. I can see Hope fades away because I'm, I'm not hoping I got it, all right? But what remains? Love, because love is the life of heaven. Man, that's a super clarifying remark. Paul going beyond the purely natural virtues and teaching us the supernatural virtues that order us to what lasts. People ask, you know, like the Feynman question in a way, people say, okay, a genie comes out of a bottle and says, "You know, you got three wishes. What would you ask for?" And and the answer I would give, I, I and I don't know how people would take, would take that. I'd say, I would ask for faith, hope, and love, because, and I don't mean that in some kind of cutesy, sticky, pious way. That's that's there's something tough and realistic about that because. I know that everything else I'd ask for, oh, give me, you know, $20 million. Oh, give me, I'm the most famous man in the world. Make me like Michael Jordan in 1997, the most famous man in the world. All those things fade. All those things fade. They all fade away. But what doesn't fade away? Faith, hope, and love. So I'd ask the genie, presuming he's some kind of angel or something positive, I'd ask for those three things. And Paul taught me that. All right, let's move forward a few hundred more
1: centuries. We'll go from Paul to the greatest of the church fathers, and that's St. Augustine. St. Augustine, he was so voluminous in his writings, it's tough to encapsulate them into one
0: sentence. But what's the Augustine sentence that he would offer? Well, you know, in a, in a, in a, look at his De doctrina Christiana. He answers the Feynman question because they asked Augustine, what's the key to understanding the whole Bible? And he gave a version of, of Jesus' answer, which is you love the Lord your God with your whole heart, love your neighbors yourself. And that everything else in the Bible is meant to revolve around that and lead to it, go forth from it, etc. Super clarifying, by the way. Super clarifying and important. When people say, oh, but the Bible says, and they pull out something. Well, you can pull anything out of the Bible, as you and I both know. You can argue any position under the sun from the Bible. What you need is some kind of hermeneutical principle. And Augustine gives it to us in that. Uh, So it's cool that he answered the Feynman question in regard to the Bible. But I would say if I were to hazard a, a guess. It might be his psychological analogy for the Trinity. When Augustine said, all right, I'm trying to understand how God, who's one, he accepted the Shema, right? He said credo and unum deum. But yet he felt revelation compelled us to say there's some kind of play of, of diversity within God. And he does it through the famous psychological analogy. The mens, the mind, the, the primordial a um, kathonic knowing source of the divine being that's the father the father in a great act of self-knowledge generates the son it's called notitia sui for augustine self-knowledge then the father and son from all eternity look at each other and they they fall in love and that shared love he called it amor sui self-love that's the holy spirit now the reason i'm saying that is in naming the Trinity, what are you naming but the ground of being? You're, you're naming the very source of all reality. Is there something like relationship and love at the heart of all reality? And I think the answer has to be yes. And so, and as he articulates the meaning of the Trinity, Augustine is, and it's the Feynman thing, he is telling us in a way, all that we need to know about being, about reality. Um, So maybe I'd do that from the De Trinitate, the psychological analogy for the Trinity, might be my Feynman for Augustine. Again, we're talking
1: about the cataclysm sentence, which is this hypothetical thought experiment from the physicist Richard Feynman, who said if the whole civilization collapses, there's some cataclysmic event, and you could only pass on one sentence to the next Generation, the next era of life, what would you pass on? And so far we've speculated about what Moses would offer and Jesus, Paul, and Augustine. Let's move next to St. Thomas Aquinas, arguably the the greatest mind, the greatest intellect in the history of the church. What would a a great doctor of
0: the church like Aquinas have to offer? Well, you know, long before um, I knew about this program, this is many years ago, I was kind of compelled to come up with this for Thomas because I was, um, as rector of Mundelein, I was re- Kind of building our house chapel as the john paul ii chapel and i was building uh these new windows to put 19 windows that surround the chapel and by the way it's one of my it's my pride and joy in many ways that chapel and i felt like moses (laughs) because i built that chapel oversaw its design and construction and just as we were putting the last touches on it i was sent out here so i never it was like the promised land i was never able to enter anyway though one of the windows, of course, is Thomas Aquinas. And I, we were suggesting things to the designer, and I said, I'd like him to be holding a book open, and the book is the Summa. And I want it open to this passage. And I cited uh, the passage where Thomas says, in God, essence and existence coincide. And that's my Feynman statement for Thomas Aquinas. That's code for the simplicity of God. God is not a type of being. See, that's why it's a Feynman thing, because everything else in the universe, from, from the what's the largest possible being, Brandon, like, like galaxies or something, all the way down to quarks and subatomic particles, whatever else exists, exists as metaphysically complex. That means it's a type of being. It's being received according to a delimiting principle. So that I can say, let's say as a scientist, oh, that's a galaxy, that's a quark, that's an antelope, that's a... That move is made possible by the real distinction between essence and existence that obtains within any creature. Go beyond the world. Say like an angel. I'd say the angel is the highest type of creature. But in an angel, there exists a distinction between essence and existence. In God alone, no such uh, distinction obtains, because God is not a being of any particular type. God is the sheer act of to-be itself. To be God is to be to-be, right? Well, see, that sheds light in every possible direction, because now we know, by the way, who the true God is, the Shema, hero Israel, that's it. He, there's the one. There can't be two of those, by the way, right? There can't be two absolutely unconditioned realities. So Hero O Israel, that's the one. Moreover, stay with Moses, the voice from the burning bush, right? And, uh, well, if the people ask me, what's your name, what will I tell them? And God says, in the, in the, the Greek that Paul certainly would have known, ego e mi ho on, rendered Latin, ego sum qui sum, I am who I am. Which could be said of no other reality. I am a human being. That is a camera. That is, what's this new, the killer hornet? These new hornets we're dealing with now? Now that the plague has come through, the hornets are right, uh, anyway. Uh, I, I can name all these things as types of being. Well, what's your name, God? I am who I am. In me, essence and existence coincide, you know? So that's my Thomas Aquinas Feynman statement, is if you know that about God, you'll know something absolutely basic about him and about absolutely everything else, mind you, that participates in him, right? All reality, all finite reality, must derive its being from the creative source, which is God. Man, now your whole life will change. Now your whole life should change once you get that. All right,
1: let's leap forward several centuries. This will be the last major figure we look at. We're going to go from the Thomas of the 13th century to the Thomas of the 20th century, namely Thomas Merton, one of your favorite uh, spiritual masters. Thomas Merton offered so much teaching on prayer, the spiritual life, contemplation. What's, What's his cataclysmic sentence?
0: You know, Brandon, was helping me a little bit as we do this, I hadn't quite thought of this, is how, how all these are related to each other, right? Is there's like a golden thread that runs from Moses through Thomas Merton and everybody in between. Because here's Merton's, I think. Uh, I think he would have said this. The one thing he wanted to teach everybody was the meaning of contemplation. And Merton knew, he's a Trappist monk, that for most people you say contemplation, you think of you know, a, a habited monk wandering in the depths of the woods somewhere. And that's fine. Those people could be doing contemplation. But what contemplation means, Merton said, is this. Finding the place in you where you are here and now being created by God. It's a super definition of, call it prayer or contemplation. And see how it's linked to Aquinas. That's right out of the Aquinas playbook. As I move through the day, I might not be averring to this very often. I'm doing this now with you I'll be recording some sermons. I'll be driving back to my house. I'll be doing it to pray is consciously to focus on the fact that all of this is coming forth from this gracious divine Source, you know the the water bubbling up in you to eternal life as Jesus called it to the woman at the well um, to pray is to attend to this truth. You might say as a Trappist, that was Merton's full-time job. You know, his, he was praying on his own behalf, but also on behalf of the whole church. That There are certain people that, that do this as part of their vocation. But all of us Merton taught, quite rightly, and here he <clears throat> anticipated Vatican II, that, that every baptized person is called upon to be a contemplative in that sense. Um, So I think he would say that is, is find the center through this great act of contemplative prayer, and you'll find everything we've been talking about. You'll find the one in whom essence and essay coincide. You'll find the one who's a play between mens notitia sui and amor sui. You'll find the unum necessarium, right? The one thing that matters. You'll find the way, the truth, and the life. You'll find Ego sum qui sum. So go right back through all the people we mentioned. uh, In a way that contemplative stance is is opening the door to that experience. Well, we can't conclude the episode without getting
1: the Bishop Barron cataclysmic sentence. So if you could sum up your whole (laughs) spiritual program in, in one sentence, the whole world's destroyed tomorrow, word on fire ceases to be. What's the
0: one enduring sentence you want to leave the next era of life? You know when I was rector again, I I Rearranged the spiritual formation program around the three paths and in a way I've been talking about them Find the center Know you're a sinner Realize your life is not about you find the center. That's the Merton thing. That's that's contemplation and all that stuff Know you're a sinner. Well in the presence of the light you see the smudges, right? Now you got to deal with all your attachments once you do that you're ready for mission So that tripartite uh, move, I think, is—I mean, I've been teaching it for years to people. I try to teach it to myself when I find myself wandering into a bad spiritual space. Find the center. Know you're a sinner. Realize your life is not about you. Um, Maybe I'd, I'd leave the world with that if I could.
1: Well, it's time now for a question from one of our listeners. Every episode we take one, sometimes we take multiple. But if you have a question for Bishop Barron, send it in. You can do it at askbishopbarron.com. That's the website, askbishopbarron.com. You can record your question and it might appear here on a future episode. Today we're hearing from Rose, she's in San Diego, and she's asking if humans seem to mess up all the time, but they're created in the image of God, what does that say about God? Here's her question.
0: Rose from San Diego, and my question is, throughout the entire Bible, we see humans sin, fail, and continually to make poor choices. Did God make a mistake with his creation? And if we are made in his image, what does our continual sin and poor choices say about God? Yeah, thank you. It's a real fundamental question, and and it's complex to give a full answer, but let me just do it as quickly as I can. The answer is, is freedom. So God gave us freedom because God did not want puppets. God wanted people who would fall in love with him. right? If you knew that someone was your friend because they were, someone held a gun to their head, you know, so, uh, oh, you hang out with me because you're being threatened or you're being bribed? I mean, how happy would you be about that? What you want is someone that becomes your friend because freely he or she decided, right? So God doesn't want puppets or doesn't want people coerced into loving him. He wants people that will... Freely offer themselves and respond to him. Well, the minute you say freedom ipso facto you say the possibility of an abuse of freedom now, let's say you start with a a Couple people a handful of people and freedom starts getting abused It's it's like the spread of a disease, right? It could start very very small but before you know it, well, my abuse of freedom is going to so anger that person that, that she's going to abuse her freedom. And, and then that's going to set up such a tension and trouble that that, that guy's going to abuse his freedom. And before you know it, this thing is spread like a contagion all over the world. And I think that's the best way to understand original sin. It's like a, a contagion or a dysfunction that has spread itself all over the world. Could God just deal with it? Well, in a way, no. If God wants us to be free, He wants us to respond to Him freely. He can't just, you know, declare uh, sin is dealt with. Now, does God deal with sin? Yeah. Now, welcome to the world of, um, of soteriology or salvation. Jesus sent, right, as the healer. Jesus sent as the one to deal with the contagion better to take the contagion upon himself and thereby take it away. So all of that begins to make sense against this background. But, 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 even that can be resisted, right? Can we still say no, even to the salvation offered in Jesus? And the dreadful answer is yes, we can, we can. So I'm just sketching an answer to that, but I think it all hinges upon freedom. Now your question about the image: um, sin is a is a um, obscuring of the image. God made us to be His image-bearing creatures, right? That we would look like God, which means full of love and justice and uh, and um, harmony. That we would we would radiate God's manner of being to the world. That's still our vocation. What's happened is through sin, the imago has gotten bruised and smudged and and contorted what's jesus come to do but to restore the imago right to restore and that happens now through the life of the church and the sacraments etc so the imago is there it's just it's beaten up a little bit and it needs to be um, burnished
1: well thanks rose for that great question before we wrap up here, I want to encourage everyone again to check out Bishop Barron's new film series and study program. It's titled The Sacraments. There are six beautiful dynamic talks that you'll find. You can watch the first episode for free. Just go to wordonfireshow.com sacraments, and from there, you'll find out how to access the rest of them. I should add that if you're a member of the Word on Fire Institute, you already have access right now to all six episodes. You can log into the Institute, find them on the Word on Fire digital platform if you're not a member yet maybe you're on the fence now's a great time to jump in because as soon as you sign up you'll get access to this entire new film series along with a ton of other courses and films and bonuses so check that out by visiting wordonfire.institute well thanks so much for listening we'll see you next week on the word on fire show
0: thanks so much for watching If you enjoyed this video, I encourage you to share it, and be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel.